Days. Tan Talk. Entertaining and informative radio for the Sunshine State. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. It was loud, it was rebellious, and in 1966, the British government banned rock and roll on the radio. That's the whole point of being the government. If you don't like something, you simply make it illegal. Until one American DJ... I don't give a hoot nanny about your limey laws. He's possibly the most famous broadcaster ever. And a band of renegades... You must be the count! I am he. Take me to the microphone. ...launched a radio station on the high seas... We should have said so years ago. ...and raided the airwaves. Let's have a tune. I'm sick of this silence. I'm the count. You are listening to Radio Rockers. We count down to ecstasy. Rock on! Are you doing something dirty? And that was for Erica. <laughs> they had millions of fans. A nice young man has lost his virginity. A boat full of treasure. Busy day. <laughs> and the full attention. Pirate radio. Of the authorities. That will soon be the first person to curse on rock and roll radio. Here it comes. Shut that filth up. Oh, we're going to shut them down. They can't close us down. We're pirates. They will find a way. Governments loathe people being free. This fall, experience the comedy. Our heroic disc jockeys become dangerous criminals. About the untold story. The crime war. Of the motley crew that saved rock and roll. This is a trick. We've got the wrong damn boat! Spectacular mistake. From the creator of Four Weddings and a Funeral. These are the best days of our lives. And Love Actually. They will come after us. Let them try. I intend to broadcast from this ship until the day I die. And for a couple days after that. Academy Award winner Philip Seymour Hoffman, Bill Nye, Risa Fong, Nick Frost, and Kenneth Branagh. Young men and young women will always dream dreams and put those dreams into song. Pirate Radio. Let's rock! Don't know what that means. I didn't understand any of that. Set the way back machine. Yes, sir, Mr. Peabody. Hey there, this is John Oates, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Welcome, you are tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers and Google Tantalk1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfstreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us, and if you've missed any of our 600, and I lost count, some odd shows. 650, I actually know that. Oh, 650, all right. Because we're on an even number. <laughs> okay, 650 shows, go to NostalgicRadioandCars.com, NostalgicRadioandCars.com. I, I need to practice that radio voice. Like uh, Don Potter, what do we have for our guest today? Don? Anyway. Um, or don't do it again, either one. Or don't do it again, either one? Okay. <laughs> anyway, hey, we got a great show for you, Doc. This is March. March is music is a theme for the whole month. So we got some pretty good, uh, pretty interesting people coming on. Musicians, I might add. And uh, something I wish I was. I play a little guitar, but not much. But anyway, we got a really special guy coming on this evening. And uh, he will be performing over at the Plant City Strawberry. Festival, right, Bobby? Yes, Florida Strawberry Festival. Yes, is that what it's called? Okay, Florida, oh, yeah. Florida, yes. Florida. It is our. That's that's what you do when you come to Florida. Well, you first, know, that's like your initiation. That <laughs> in, a, in a certain 
Well, that or a certain supermarket that we all go to. Oh, Publix, yes. where shopping is a pleasure. Yes. That's like... Once you've done those two things, you can you can you, be a you, you, you can be a resident here. You you've been initiated. <laughs> yes, I guess that's it. Okay, good, good, good. Okay, so anyway, yeah, and uh, I think on that note, how are we doing time wise? Okay, so we just had the St. Pete Grand Prix this past weekend. That was great. A big shout out to my friends, my team members at Fast Lane Travel because we had a spectacular time at the Porsche Works reunion up at Amelia Island. Good shout out to my friends over there at RM Auction. They were really pretty cool. They got some really neat cars over there. And on that note, I think what we're going to do is we're going to fire up the stereo. We're going to play you a little music. This is a little warm-up taste to our special guest. Yes. And, uh, yeah, we got some pretty groovy stuff lined up for you. Groovy, man. Groovy, 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 groovy. Anyway, on that note, uh, here is a little uh, here's a little ditty. It's actually a classic, but they got some pretty interesting, um, let's say, musicians uh, all uh, kind of putting a little spin on it. So, hey, you're tuning in to Nostalgia Getting Cars. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. My biggest hits, ladies and gentlemen, Tommy James. Gentlemen, it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. I'm delighted to have this gentleman on our show. He is a national recording artist, a musical legend, the one and only Tommy James from the Shondells. Tommy, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. How are you? Well, you should be excited because you're going to be here in our very own backyard in Plant City, Florida. We're based out of Clearwater, but you're only going to be about uh, less than 50 miles away performing this yeah. coming Thursday. That's We're ex- very excited about it. The whole group is. We uh, always love coming to Florida, but this is special. This is, you know, it's interesting. The Strawberry Festival, which we also played in uh, February of 2020, was the very last concert uh, we did before they shut the concert business down because of COVID. They shut it down all over the country. And so the Strawberry Festival was the last concert that we did. It was great. It was uh, was a huge crowd. It was a lot of fun. And so we're really looking forward to come back and uh, and do it again because it's kind of kicking off our concert season this year, picking up where we left off. How many shows do you have planned for this year? What's your schedule like? Well, all in all, when all is said and done, probably around 30. I don't like to take any more than that because it really, uh, you know, it's a grind and there's a lot of traveling involved. So it's great to see the fans, though. I like the traveling less and less, but I, I always love seeing the fans and mixing it up with the fans. It's going to be a fun year. So now, when you do these venues, so to speak, how big are the crowds that you generally play for these days? Well, I, you know, I look out into our concert crowd. I literally see three generations of people. It really blows my mind because the crowds have been with us all these years, and uh, they just keep growing. We do probably anywhere from in a theater venue, we'll probably do about 3,000. In a bigger venue, we'll do whatever the capacity usually is. So uh, it varies, and I'm, as I say, I'm just very thankful to uh, to have the kind of fan base we do because they've almost become like extended family over the years. And it's a good bunch of people, and they're ready, always ready to rock. Well, as you mentioned, you've got three generations now. You you've been performing since the early early '60s. Since your first song, your first recorded song was what was it? Long ponytail. Yes. 
That's right. Well, that was uh, when I was in high school. Okay. I was, four I was 14 years old when we made that record. So that's how long I've been doing this. You know, it's like, uh, it's like being a paper boy your whole life. I have the same job. <laughs> when you first got into music, how old were you when you first picked up an instrument? Because I believe you're, you play guitar, correct? Yeah, well, I played a ukulele. My grandfather bought me a ukulele for my fourth birthday. And I started, you know, banging on the ukulele and singing and, and, and playing stuff on the radio. And then when I was nine years old, I got my first acoustic guitar when I saw Elvis on TV. The ukulele went out the window, and uh, I started playing guitar when I was nine. And uh, when I was uh, ten, I got my first electric guitar. And uh, that really changed everything. And I started my first group. Uh, we played our very first gig that we got paid for when I was 13. And, uh, you know, I've been, I've been doing this a long time, doing it ever since. What was it like back then for you, you know, playing with your high school band in a high school? What kind of notoriety? Was there any kind of pressures or anything like that back in the day? Or no, we that? were a cover band. And okay. uh, we were first called the Tornadoes when we made our first record. And then we became the Shondells when we signed our second record deal. I was, uh, I was 16 years old. And uh, that's when we re actually recorded the song that became my first hit record, Hanky Panky. And we recorded that in Niles, Michigan, my hometown, with my high school group, the, our cover band, the Shondells. And uh, it was released and did great locally, but it was on all the jukeboxes. But, uh, you know, it died because we had no distribution. And uh, that was the end of that. So the next year, I graduated from high school in 65, and I took my band on the road, and we played clubs uh, all through the Midwest. And in early 66, uh, like March of 66, I'm playing this dumpy little club in Janesville, Wisconsin. <laughs> and right in the middle of my two weeks, the, uh, the uh, club owner gets shut down by the IRS for not paying his taxes. Oh. <laughs> it's a true story. So that's how God works. Because we went home feeling like losers. And, uh, but as soon as I got home in March of 66, I got the call that changed my life. That Hanky Panky, this record I had recorded two years earlier, um, was sitting at number one in Pittsburgh. And I went, what? Who is this? And I almost hung up on the guy. It was the distributor, in uh, the record distributor in, in Pittsburgh that tracked me down. And if I hadn't have been home at that exact moment, if the IRS hadn't shut down the club owner, you and I wouldn't be talking today because <laughs> I would have never known about it. And uh, so they finally convinced me they were who they said they were. And I went to Pittsburgh uh, in March to do uh, local television and stuff in support of Hanky Panky. And uh, I couldn't put the original band back together, so I sort of grabbed the first group I could find out of a club, and they became the Shondells and got my first manager. And we headed for New York City to sell the master to uh, to a major label, and uh, I'm sorry to get so long-winded with this, but no. I just wanted to tell you that just unwind, unravel this for you. When I went to New York, we got a yes from all the record companies. We got a yes from Atlantic, Columbia, Epic, uh, Kamasutra. Remember Kamasutra Records back then? And so uh, the last place we took the record to was Roulette Records. So I went to sleep that night. We stayed in the city. I went to bed that night feeling really great because we had gotten a yes from all the major labels, and we were probably going to be with one of the big corporate labels like CBS or RCA. So the next morning, about 9.30, 10 o'clock, we started getting calls from all the labels that had said yes the day before. And, listen, Tom, we got a pass. <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, you got to pass. I thought we had a deal. And finally, Jerry Wexler up at Atlantic uh, told me the truth that Morris Levy, the head of Roulette Records, uh, had called all of the other labels and, and backed them down, scared them to death, basically. <laughs> he was right out of central casting. He was a mob figure right out of central casting. And uh, he called them all and said, this is my record. 
back off. That's just how we talk, too. <laughs> and um, and uh, so we were apparently going to be on Roulette Records. It was the first offer we couldn't refuse. <laughs> so anyway, that's how it happened that we ended up on Roulette. But they took Hanky Panky to number one everywhere in, on the planet and ended up being, you know, one of the biggest records of the summer of 66. And that began my career. Ah, I'm out of breath. Oh, no, no, no. You're doing just fine. But I, w- I want to get into the uh, the mob story here in a minute. But all right. So that song was actually written by somebody else. Correct. It was. It was written by Jeff Barry and Ali Greenwich. Did they sing it, and then you covered it, and it became successful? On, uh, that's correct. Okay. Yes, that's what happened. They basically, when I heard Hanky Panky, I had heard another group play it, and I didn't know where it came from. I happened to be working in a record shop uh, after school, so we went back and looked up Hanky Panky, and it turns out that it was the flip side of a record called That Boy John by the Raindrops. And... That Boy John uh, was a song about John Kennedy, and it was right around the assassination time. And when he was assassinated, uh, of course, they took the record off the market, and the B-side went with it. So it was really obscure. And all I could remember was six words. You know, my baby does the hanky-panky. And um, maybe it's five. I don't know if hanky and panky are two different words. I don't know. (laughs) I'm not sure about that. Maybe "hanky panky" is one word, but at any rate, um, I, I, you know, I saw what it did to the the kids on the dance floor. I said, just everybody just headed for the dance floor as soon as they started playing that song. And I said, we got to do that. So we had just signed a little record deal uh, at the time, and we did, that's where we ended up recording "hanky panky." because I'd heard it by another group. And Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich then became, when I came to New York, they became good friends of mine. That's excellent. Let me ask you this. So years later, you had uh, a couple other big, big hits. That was 1966. 68, you had uh, Sweet Cherry Wine. And then one of my favorites actually came out in 71, which is Dragging the Line. Now, did you write some of those songs, that and Crystal Blue Persuasion, or did you have other songwriters? Sure. I, uh, most of them I did. I uh, after Hanky Panky, of course, there was Say I Am and I Think We're Alone Now. Right. And uh, Mirage and um, then Moni Moni. And Moni was really where I started um, writing. Uh, you know, we started writing our own material. And then Crimson and Clover, the next record after that, was um, where I started producing the group. So it was a pro- progression. Uh, from one one record album to the next, and finally after Crimson and Clover, we got into Crystal Blue and you know uh, Sweet Cherry Wine and all that stuff. And uh, that really uh, Crimson and Clover was really a turning point for us because it uh, you know strategically, uh, first of all, was the biggest record we ever had sales wise, but it also was. Um, uh, you know, the, where I started, we started producing ourselves, and our style really changed, and we started selling albums as a result of Crimson and Clover and gave us the second half of our career, really. So, uh, you know, that's how things moved along in the 60s. And then uh, in 1970, uh, the Shondells and I sort of went our separate ways, and I did a solo career from that point on. We started with Dragon Line and moved on from there. When you were younger, because you had mentioned a, uh, a few minutes ago that you were touring with your friends or your band, and then you heard about um, you know, the guy from Pittsburgh that called you, and you met with him. So did you have a manager, or was your dad helping you out, anybody in your family, or did you kind of have, I mean, because, you know, when you're 16, when you're a teenager, it's not like you got a lot of business experience, and I've had a number of musicians on my show over the years, and they've always gotten taken advantage of by, you know, record labels, managers. Did you ever experience any of that? <laughs> I experienced a lot of it. <laughs> Okay. I wrote a book about it. That's where I'm leading yeah, to. Well, you know, um, my folks basically let me alone because, you know, we were doing well as a cover band all do- during high school. Uh-huh. And, um, uh, you know, my mom still couldn't believe I was getting money for strumming a guitar. <laughs> so, <laughs> 
she until she died she was waiting for me to come to my senses and get this music thing out of my system so i could go to notre dame you know what i mean okay <laughs> so at any rate um um you know when i when we did get to new york of course we went I, as i said with roulette records and i wrote a book called me the mob and the music about it and the, it was about our which is an autobiography with about two-thirds of it devoted to this crazy and tumultuous and scary relationship we had with Roulette Records. And the the reason it was scary and tumultuous is because Roulette Records, in addition to being a, a good little indie label, was also uh, a front for the Genovese crime family in New York. And, of course, we didn't know any of this. Uh, we just kind of... Uh, uh, you know, followed our nose into you know, uh, into into this into this uh, situation with roulette, and uh, the ironic part is though that I don't think if we had signed with one of the corporate labels that we would have been nearly as successful as we were with roulette, and it's a strange combination of reasons why. But if we had gone, let's say, with Columbia or somebody. Uh, especially with a fluky record like Hanky Panky, we would have been lucky to have been a one-hit wonder because the competition was incredible. There were so many other acts, and we would have immediately been handed over to an in-house producer, you know, A&R man, and that's probably the last time anybody would have heard from us. At Roulette, they actually needed us. They hadn't had a hit in over three years, and... We were given the red carpet treatment. I mean, we, we had everything we wanted. I had, uh, and I was, uh, the group and I were basically in charge of our own career. And um, so I was able to learn the record business, you know, sort of from the ground up. And, uh, you know, songwriting and producing and making records and, distribution and album covers and all that stuff we participated in everything so uh that would have never happened at a, at a major label you know what i'm saying right never happened well it sounds like it so but back in the day to protect yourself so that you would have access to residuals or uh you know uh revenue down the road were they out front about that, how that would work and everything like that? Or is that something <laughs> well, you found out later and you got... crime doesn't pay. Oh, crime doesn't pay, okay. <laughs> so, um, but, uh, you know, they let us know early on that mechanical royalties just weren't going to happen. And, um, you know, getting money from roulette was like taking a bone from a Doberman, you know, just okay. wasn't going to happen. And, uh, but, you know, of course, we were making a lot of money from our concerts and from radio airplay with BMI and um, commercials. And there was lots of other revenue sources, but mechanical royalties were just not going to happen. And we had to make a decision. Do we try to get out of roulette records because we were having such amazing success there, one record right after another? Or do we, you know, try to back out and... Uh, and go somewhere else, but we knew it was going to be trouble. Morris Levy was not going to let us go voluntarily. And then there was also the danger of really getting them angry. You know, it's, it, it's just, it was a, a very nutty situation. If I'd have been older and wiser, I'd have been more scared. <laughs> okay. All right. So all right, explain to me mechanical royalties. I don't, I don't, I'm not from, I've never heard that term before. So for sure. myself and our listeners, what does that mean? Well, royalties uh, for a, a recording artist are divided into two categories. One is called mechanical royalties, which is the over-the-counter sale of, of a record. Okay. You know, it's when money is directly collected and, and paid to the distributor and then back to the record company. And then the other is called residuals, Okay. which um, is basically radio airplay and publishing. Uh, it's the stuff that's collected for you all over the world. Uh, so mechanicals and residuals are the two different... Uh, we were getting residuals. 
Okay. But we were not getting mechanicals, and the mechanicals was where the big money was. Um, okay, record and, sales. So if you sold 100 million records, then you got zip, zero, nada. But if you were out performing or airplay, then you well, got... Well, over the radio. The songs were played on the radio, and, and that we were getting. Okay. Radio how, airplay also pays royalties. Okay, how about uh, when you do concerts and stuff like that, the proceeds from there? Did oh, you... we do concerts. Well, it's yeah, that's a... That's a fee. That's a direct fee. Okay. And percentages, you know, that 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 boils it down to how many how many rear ends you put in seats. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. That's okay. simple. That's what I love about the rock and roll business, by the way, is it's very black and white. You're either selling tickets or you're not. It's a very honest blue collar approach, and I've always I've always liked that about the rock and roll business. Well, here's a question that I get asked often, and I can't answer it, and perhaps you can. And that is, mm -hmm. so I was reading an article. So you have some of the artists that have sold out their, let's just say their collections. You know, David Bowen did it first, and now subsequently many others have done it. Well, I mean, they sell their, their catalog and, of music. Right. So then, right. and it's for X number of dollars, so then they have... And I don't know what kind of deals are structured, you know, whether they still get residuals or not. But then there was always this comment, and I can't remember, and I won't mention who it was, but it was an entertainer. He says, you know, we, over the years, you know, we did very well, and now here we are later in life, and we're still performing. Some of us do it because we love it, and we don't know anything else. Some of us do it because we have to do it, you know, because we got hammered so bad over the years in the process by, you know, not so nice record people, promoters, managers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the question I get asked is, so why do some of these guys still perform? Really, most of it, it's passion. So on your part, it's pretty much, you do this because you love it and you're passionate about it, correct? Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't know, I wouldn't know how to do anything else, you know. Um, this is something that is in your blood and, and you just got to do it. Um, I suppose if you're eventually not healthy enough to do it, that's that's one thing, or if nobody comes around to see you anymore. But in our case, the, everything has just kept going up. And, and I've been very, very blessed and fortunate to have this kind of longevity um, and to be able to stay healthy and do this all, and the fans are always there. And so, you know, new things, we're doing new things all the time. We now have our own label where we're able to put out product, include the old stuff or doing new studio stuff anytime we want. Uh, of course, the Internet gives us incredible latitude. You know, the, your market is the whole planet now with the Internet. And um, also, uh, we have our own publishing company, and we've been able... When I say we, I mean, I mean myself, and I share that with my group. Um, we've been able to uh, recoup basically um, a, a great deal of what, of what was lost and, uh, and then some. So I'm, I'm very, very blessed to be doing this. I thank the good Lord every day for the, uh, you know, the fan base and the people that have stuck with us and the longevity that we've had. I, re I really mean that sincerely. Well, you had some super, super songs, and, you know, they're just, uh, they're just catchy. I mean, they're on TV, they're in commercials, they've been in films. I mean, you guys got to really just pat yourself on the back because, you, you know, you, Thank you, you. you were there then and you're there today. Let me ask you another question. So do you get to, as an entertainer, do you kind of pick and choose the venues that you like to play and, and the timetable? Pretty much. I mean, uh, you know, we, uh, the, we work with promoters all over. Uh, North America. I don't like leaving the country, to be honest with you, right okay. now. I'm, I'm, uh, we may do some work in in Europe, but I I, I really am always kind of leery about leaving the country. I always feel that more comfortable working here. And um, uh, you know, we work with promoters all over North America, and we uh, play venues uh, coast to coast and up and down. So we're uh, we are all over the place. I also have. Uh, you know, my show on Sirius XM. I was going to get into that. Yes, tell us about that. And that's on Sundays between sure. uh, 5 well, and 8 p.m., right? Yeah, that, that, thank you for the plug. Um, we, um, I was approached, we're in our sixth year now, and I was approached uh, by Sirius XM to, to, do a, to host a, a weekly show. And uh, for when I first thought about it, I was a little scared. 
because I had never really worked that side of the microphone before, you know. Um, and I started doing the show, and I loved it. I get, I get to write it. I get to, you know, <laughs> I get to play. They said, Tommy, play anything you want. You know, it's within, it's on the 60s channel, so... Uh, I try to stick pretty close to the 60s. They let me wander a little into the 70s and into the 50s a little bit. But I try to keep it uh, pure. And um, they say play anything you want. And really, the philosophy of the show is, is simple. Uh, you know, in the, it's called Getting Together. Uh, it's, it's on every Sunday from 5 to 8 Eastern Time, p.m. And... Um, uh, I, I get to play songs that not only are hits, but songs that I that should have been hits, you know, and weren't that I just thought I've always thought were great. And uh, uh, I get to play, uh, you know, they, they said, Tom, play a lot of your old of your own stuff. I says, can I go to jail for that? <laughs> playing my songs on my show i mean isn't that a conflict of interest no 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 it's satellite don't worry about it <laughs> so i said okay and you're on channel so, 73 uh, right channel 73 if i'm channel 73 thank you for reminding me of saying okay. that thank you well now i have everybody. to throw this in because you're good friends with ronnie van zandt and he does on channel 21 stevie, stevie right stevie stevie van zandt he does garage bands he's got a garage band right. series so i've listened to that before but you and him didn't he wasn't there a uh, didn't he present you with an award at uh at an induction in new jersey at yeah. the hall of fame well, stevie and i are good friends and we have been for a long time okay um uh you know, as a matter of fact, he played on a single that I released back in uh, 2019. It was a uh, uh, well, we we never released it, but it was it was the one of the main songs on our album. Uh, we did a, a remake of Dragon Line. Oh, really? And Tone Z did a did a rap on it with me, and uh, Stevie played guitar. Um, Stevie and I uh, have been friends for quite a while, and he's a great guy. And very knowledgeable. He's involved in so many musical things, you know. Uh, it's just amazing. A lot of causes and stuff. Um, Stevie introduced me to, you know, on stage uh, at the uh, New Jersey Hall of Fame, which was a fun night, a fun thing to do. And um, uh, he's been very gracious with a lot of people. Remember, he put the Rascals back together and did a, a Broadway, wrote a Broadway show for him that did really great uh he's been uh very gracious to me and we've done a uh i got a chance to meet all the cast from the sopranos that he was on <laughs> yeah, that's right he was he was a character so I, I get to know the, the 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 real mob guys and the fake fake mob guys so i guess that's pretty well-rounded yeah well now what's your new jersey connection is that is it through stevie uh just that i uh, no, New Jersey is where I have lived for since 1973. <laughs> so when you got involved I lived with... in New York before, I, I, you know, I lived in Manhattan for about eight years. Okay. And uh, then I moved out to Jersey, and uh, you know, Jersey has got everything going here. You can get to New York easy enough. It's only about 30 minutes away, the city. And you can still have a squirrel in your yard. So get the best of both worlds. Oh, okay. So I take it you live out in the country a little bit. Well, not out in the country so much. It's just a, a really beautiful part of New Jersey and North Jersey. Okay. Do you have a recording studio at your house then, too, like a lot of uh, musicians it, it, do? No, I have a rehearsal studio at the house. The recording studio is uh, about uh, a mile and a half away. And it's where I do not only all my music but it's where i do my show as well oh okay now you had an album come out a couple of years ago too right you want to tell us a little bit about That's right. that went top 24 well our last studio album was called alive mm -hmm. and it did very well for us i hadn't had an album out a new album out in uh about 10 years and so uh, alive came out went top 20 adult contemporary for us and both singles that we released from the album went top 20 adult contemporary and billboard and it was great to be back on the charts again what can i say 
It's fun doing it. So when you sit down and you're going to, let's say you want to write a song, and, you know, your genre, I mean, they always talk about, you know, the music areas that you kind of covered are bubblegum music, uh, garage rock, gospel. I guess you did some gospel songs, pure pop, white soul. When you sit down today, you don't have to really, because of your experience, you don't really have to stick with one particular genre. You just you can kind of mix it up a little bit. Is that kind of that's true? I've been that's right. I've been very lucky to have been sort of all over the place. So uh, whatever comes to mind is what I do. I usually start writing with um, the groove. Okay. I usually start with rhythm, and when I find a a, a rhythm pattern, a groove that I like. Uh, then I basically will start with chords and, you know, just sort of like building blocks. So you start with the music and, uh, first, so you're playing your guitars. What well, you're I generally do, although I've, I've, I've sometimes uh, come with a title first. Oh, okay. Titles, uh, you know, some, that's what we did with Crystal Blue Persuasion. Uh, the title was first. And I, uh, you know, so I mean, I'm, as a songwriter, you're always on the lookout for interesting titles. And, uh, you know, things that are visual and that, uh, you know, are provocative. And uh, I suppose that's one end, end of, the, of songwriting, and the other end is the, is the groove. Uh, very, very important, especially today. And so I like to write sometimes with a cheap little drum machine. And, and you just play with it till you find the groove that fits the mood you're in. You know, sometimes, you know, doing a doing a ballad or something really serious is what you feel like doing. Other times you just want to do a dance thing. So anywhere in between. Okay. Also, you're labeled as playing psychedelic music. Now, I can't think of any of your songs that really fall in the category of psychedelic. Well, we, you... we got a lot of FM and, uh, and all, uh, what was considered alternative back there, Airplay with Crimson and Clover. And, okay. Uh, stuff from the Crimson and Clover album, but we, you know, to me, Crimson and Clover was not psychedelic. It was, it was more of a just a a pop song slowed down, uh-huh. and uh, a three chord progression backwards. <laughs> okay. Do a lot of your songs, the lyrics, do they come from experiences? Some do, yeah. Uh, some do definitely come from your feelings and. And, uh, but if you, you know, but other, other times I, I had a, a, an interesting experience. I, I went up to BMI. This is early on in my career, went up to BMI for an award dinner and BMI is where they, they collect, uh, publishing ro- residuals for you all over the world. You know, BMI and ASCAP are the two big, uh, collectors mm-hmm. for, for songwriters. And I was sitting with Doc Pomus. Doc Pomus, who is a, a very famous, in the business, very famous uh, songwriter, that was at the time. And uh, Doc Pomus said to me, we got to talking, he says, you know, Tom, we're not writing songs. We're writing records. And boy, that hit me right between the eyes. Because that's absolutely right. We were, we were writing records. We were, we were writing, when we, we would incorporate uh, into our songwriting you know, the time restrictions, uh, how many verses, how many choruses, and it was all wrapped around this idea that we're writing for the radio. We're writing for singles. We're writing for songs that are going to be played on the radio. And there's a very tight um, format for that. Uh, And there's also, you know, a time limit on what you can do. Uh, radio has its own rules with how many, and it's based around how many commercials they can get into every half hour. And so your your song has to go along with their agenda or you don't get played. So usually the, the shorter your song, the more chance you have of getting on the radio. So because of their time restriction, there's all of these kind of rules associated with records well that's what we're doing we're writing records we're not writing songs interesting you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. so you know the intro has to be a certain number of beats so that the disc jockey can talk over the top of you and and intro your your record all of these things have to be taken into consideration when you're songwriting 
So that, that, what Doc Palmer said to me hit me right between the eyes, and I never forgot it. And I'm sure that's one of the reasons why we were successful. So back then, what was the magic number for the length of a, of a song that got super airplay? Under and- three minutes, if you can do it, but preferably it was a little bit under. And uh, I'll never forget the time. We used to send DJ copies out. You know, they were advanced copies to radio stations. And on Sweet Cherry Wine, which was really too long, I, it, was, it was four minutes and 30 seconds. And on the DJ copy, I put, next to the time, I put 390. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> three, minutes and, three minutes and 90 seconds. And all they did was look at the first number. They didn't look at the, you know, the... <laughs> and so uh, I cheated a little bit that time, but that's what I did. I mean, that's how important your time restriction was. Over the years that you've uh, been entertaining and you've been on stage with people, um, including your solo career, who are some of the acts that you really, truly worked with and uh, that you enjoyed probably the most? And oh, God. I, that- I've, I've worked with everybody over the years, honestly. Um I suppose meeting the Beatles uh, individually was fun. I had a long talk with John Lennon uh, at a BMI dinner. We were we were sitting at banquet tables. This is in 1971, and I was getting an award for Dragon Line, and he was getting it for Imagine, and they placed us back to back, and so we were at these round banquet tables, and. Uh, um, Yoko was with him, and uh, we exchanged pleasantries and uh, complimented each other and all that stuff. Uh, but it was uh, it was a thrill meeting John Lennon. I don't because I, we would have never worked together uh, because they weren't they weren't working on the road by that time. So I, I would have never had a chance another chance to see him. Um, Oh, I met Paul and Ringo a few years back at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, I was doing uh, Crimson and Clover with Joan Jett and Miley Cyrus and um, Dave Grohl. Oh, wow. Four generations, of rock, four generations of rock and rollers doing Crimson and Clover at the same time. Uh, that was kind of fun. But uh, Paul McCartney and Ringo were there. And uh, Paul was... Uh, uh, introducing Ringo, who was being inducted that night. And we all got together and had some fun after the after the show and took some pictures and talked and had, had a few laughs. Um, I never got a chance to meet George. George was uh, kind enough, though, after Moni Moni was uh, actually as big, every bit as big in in England as it was here in the States. Uh, so he was produced, George was producing a group called Grapefruit at the time. And, and, uh, they sat down and wrote me about, about six, oh, six or eight songs and demoed them and brought them over. And George brought them over and got them to my manager. And I was very grateful for that. And I, I never got a chance to thank him properly. I was out on the road somewhere. And I was, but I was very flattered and honored that uh, George did that. And I never got a chance to thank him properly, and I never got a chance. I never recorded one of the songs because by the time, uh, by the time um, uh, he wrote those songs, I was uh, we were into Crimson and Clover and had changed our styles. And basically, all the songs were sort of like Moni Moni. So we, I never, I never did one of them. And I always regretted that. Um, but anyway, that was my uh, meeting the Beatles. Uh, even one at a time was a was a big thrill because I was a huge Beatles fan. Did you guys perform in Europe at all back in the day, back in the sixties? Yeah, I'm, well, not no. Actually, I, I, it wasn't until the eighties that I oh. went over to Europe. I've always been reluctant to play outside the country. Um, I just I just have always felt that way. We probably should have gone several times, but uh, I didn't do it, and I uh, I can't say I regretted it. I'm, I may end up going over there when the movie comes out. You know, me, the mob, and the music is being yeah. turned into a movie. 
Okay, well, and when the movie comes out, I may go over and do that. Um, the, is it true that the producer of the movie also did Goodfellas and some of the other uh, yes. gangster movies? Barbara Defina is producing the movie, and um, uh, she produced Goodfellas and Casino and uh, The Color of Money back in the 80s. Oh, wow. Um, she produced Hugo with Martin Scorsese a few years ago. Uh, just an incredible string of movies, the hit movies. And we're just very honored that she is going to do our film. Who's Who plays Tommy James in the movie? Can you reveal that yet? or do you have we, to... are, we don't know yet. They're casting right now. The two primary figures are going to be myself and Morris Levy. Oh, really? Okay. And they both need to be, yeah, they both uh, need to be right. There's several people right now. I don't want to jinx anything. No, but that's they're, fine. They're, they're in casting right now, and so I won't know for a, for a while. They're not telling me. I, I, I'm supposed to be the co-producer, but I'm. <laughs> they're keeping me in the dark. How about a cameo? I better let the. I'd rather let the grown-ups handle this. Yeah, yeah, really. yeah. How about a cameo appearance? Are you going to be doing anything like oh, that? Oh yeah, I'll probably be a corpse. <laughs> no, 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 no. You know the lines are really easy, and uh, you never miss your mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what they say. You just kind of lay around, <laughs> as you say. Um, out of curiosity, you how many TV appearances back then? Were you ever? I don't remember. Were you on American Bandstand? I mean, I'm sure you had to be. Oh God, yes. Okay. So, what was it like being on oh. American Bandstand? And I got to ask this question: Did they? Did you? Were you able to play live, or did you have to kind of lip sync? How was that for you guys? Well. It, you know, you, you, the only place you ever really played live was on the Ed Sullivan Show. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I, playing live just was not good on television. They were good with, you know, acoustic guitars and, and voices. But once you get past an acoustic guitar, they just, you know, it, it was, you never sounded good on TV live. Okay. There's no way. And so that's the reason and they did so that then. I was, yeah, I had a real go around with the Sullivan people. The first Sullivan show, they wanted us to do Crimson and Clover live. And you know, the fate of Crimson and Clover was a train wreck waiting to happen. You just, you knew that. So um, there's no way they were going to get that right. So I begged and pleaded, and <laughs> they finally let me do a, a lip sync. Okay. And uh, so we did a lip sync on, on Crimson and Clover. As the first time we were on. That was a scary show to do. Really? Well, what was it like working with Ed Sullivan? I mean, everybody said he was uh, very professional. Well, first of all, doing the Sullivan show was, was scary. Just flat-out scary, because if you screwed up, your career could be over. Oh. Uh, or if you angered somebody. I mean, just ask Jackie Mason, right? <laughs> okay. So um, the bottom line was that... Um, uh, I was very nervous doing the Sullivan show. Uh, Bob Precto, his his son-in-law, was the producer of the show, and he was a great guy, and we ended up being good friends. But uh, he had this uncanny ability to have you on the week that your record was peaking, whatever number it peaked at. He had this amazing ability to, and he he'd booked the show, you know, several weeks in advance, so. You know, I told him, I want to take you to the track. <laughs> <laughs> but it, 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 really quite amazing. Uh, and he had us on the day, the actual day, Crimson and Clover went number one. Wow. And in all three trades at the same time, same week. And um, so uh, it was a very important moment. And it was, but it was scary doing the Sullivan Show because it was the most widely watched show on TV, and uh, watched by more people. So anyway, uh, and then the week before, we had just done a tour with the Beach Boys, and we're in LA at the uh, the Hyatt House, you know, and um, a couple of them were up. And we were watching the Sullivan Show. They had done the Sullivan Show like a dozen times. And so I was picking their brain for everything I could. And uh, we were watching uh, the Sullivan Show a week before I was going to be on. And, um, you know, where he introduced next week's attractions. So um, <laughs> we're listening to Sullivan. He goes, 
Now, next week right here, Tony Jones and the Spondells. Will be here, <laughs> the youngsters. Oh, wow. Tony Jones and the Spondells. I'm going to have to Google I, that. I, I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, we were they were on the floor laughing. But, you know, it means he can't read and he never heard of you. <laughs> so, so you, you know, and of course, if, if I wasn't scared before, I was terrified now, you know. Engelbert Humperdinck, he has no problem with. <laughs> the Beatles. <laughs> James, he can't pronounce, right? <laughs> so you never knew what was going to come out of Sullivan's mouth, too, you know. So at any rate, uh, we did the show, and it, it worked out great. They were very kind and very good to us, and um, it wasn't as scary as I thought it was going to be. So, What other TV shows did you do back then? So you had, obviously, uh, you know, um, American Bandstand, Ed Sullivan, what other TV well, you know, appearances? we did we did we did the ones you could all the ones you could do. I remember Joey Bishop had a show that bumped heads with the Tonight Show, and uh, oh god, it was we did we did Where the Action Is. The first oh, network yeah. show I ever did was Where the Action Is with Dick Clark, and my manager, my current manager Carol Ross, was in it was a dancer on the show. No kidding, one of the action dancers. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. How about interviews? Did you were you ever on the Tonight Show? Did you ever get uh, Dick Cavett or anything like I, that? Oh, I did Merv Griffin. I never Merv? did the Tonight Show, but I did Merv Griffin and uh, Mike Douglas and all that stuff. You know, uh, these were fun shows. I mean, they, you know, but they back in the sixties, you know, uh, it was very difficult uh, uh, doing, as I said, live rock and roll on on American television. It really didn't come across all that great so you were always better off doing a lip sync and uh and even though the fans knew you were lip syncing it was still better than going on tv and uh um you know having the 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 engineers not quite get what you were doing you know <laughs> that's true now our show is titled nostalgic radio and cars and i was talking to carol and she says you are also into cars so tell us a little bit about your uh, car hobby a little well, bit. i'm just i'm just a cadillac fan i oh, okay i want to get a 59 lincoln and all that and i love classic cars so we'll have to get you up here sometime to do a performance when we put together this really big classic car shows you know because you would be the perfect entertainer for that that would be fine so I'm really excited about coming down Thursday. We're going to have a fun show. We're going to uh, we're on at 3:30 in the afternoon, and a rare afternoon show. It's going to be a lot of people there, and it's going to be a lot of fun. How many songs are you going to do for us? Well, I'm going to do about an hour and a half's worth, many as we can cram into an hour and a half. Okay, so we're going to obviously hear the old classics and standards. Any new songs? We will. We will do. Uh, uh, I'm going to do a, a new version of I Think We're Alone Now that's going to be in the movie. Uh huh. And a uh, very different kind of arrangement. And we're going to do as many of the hits as we can shove into an hour and a half. So my phone's ringing. Your phone's ringing. Great talking with you. And I appreciate a great interview. Thanks for letting me go on and on. Well, Tommy, I want to thank you very much for hanging out with us here at Nostalgic Radio and Cars. It's been a true pleasure to have you on the show. I look forward to seeing you thank this you Thursday. Thank you so much. We're tickled to death to have him on the show. We will see him Thursday at 3.30 at the... Uh, Strawberry Festival in Plant City. In the meantime, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in every Tuesday between 7 and 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network. Be sure and tell your friends. Stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. FM 106.1 WDCF Dade City FM 102.3 WZHR Zephyr Hills FM 104.3 Listen.